to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. All right, well, as the video would say, and uh, as we have been saying for the past several weeks now, uh, we are in the book of Romans, and I invite you, if you have a copy of God's Word with you, uh, on you, uh, with you, or on your phone, if you would locate Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we've been in chapter 1 now for this will be the third week, but I promise we'll try to, we'll try to speed up just a little bit um, in, uh, in our pace of getting through the book of Romans. You guys just have to listen faster. That way I don't, I don't have to, to, to preach as, as much or as hard, but um, thankful for our worship team and putting together a beautiful, uh, just a beautiful time of worship for us this morning, um, bathed in scripture as well, reminding us that the love of God is what sets us free, and that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are to love one another as well, and I'm thankful for them for that, and that ties beautifully into the subject matter of the message today as we are looking here in the book of Romans. We're looking at the second half of Paul's introduction to this letter, and this the, we call it a book, and because it's, it's a book of the Bible, but it is actually one of Paul's epistles or letters that he wrote to the church at Rome. And we think of the church at Rome, we might think of the beautiful cathedrals as you see pictures, or if you've ever been to Rome before, you see these beautiful cathedrals and all those things. None of those existed at the time this was being written because Christianity was outlawed. And so the church at Rome was an underground church. It was house churches or churches meeting literally underground in catacombs to kind of meet in secrecy from uh, from the Roman Empire because looming over their heads was this huge thing called the Colosseum back there in the city of Rome where Christians were being taken on a regular basis into the Colosseum and being put to death in front of people for Rome's entertainment. Um, the society and the culture of Rome was very bloody. It was very violent and bloodthirsty. And so they made killing Christians a sport at this point in time. What's beautiful about this is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is presented so eloquently in the book of Romans is what eventually will change Rome and, um, and uh, eventually will infiltrate and see that. And so let's begin in verse number eight. In verse number eight of chapter one, it says this, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because he knows, because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in telling the good news about his son, that I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I want very much to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is to be mutually encouraged by each other. And by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often planned to come to you, but I was prevented until now. In order that I might have a, few, a fruitful ministry among you, just as I have had among the rest of the Gentiles. For I am obligated both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And now we get into verses 16 and 17, which serve as the key verses for the entire book of Romans. 
It is the theme, it is the central driving heartbeat of the entire book. It's the purpose for which Paul wants to come to Rome. It's the purpose for which he writes to Rome. It's the purpose for which he does every single thing he does in his ministry. And he says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement we receive in it, the correction we see in it and can take from it, Lord, the encouragement that, that, that spurs us on to righteous living and to live by faith alone in you. And so I pray this morning that as your minister and as your preacher that I wouldn't say anything that would hinder your word from going forth. Give us ears to listen, a heart that is open to you, and a spirit that is willing to rearrange whatever needs to be arranged so that we fall in line with your word because it is worth it. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. <clears throat> if you've ever been or are ever fortunate enough to be able to visit the city of Rome, you'll find that, you know, of course, in 2021, there's a lot of modern things that are around in Rome, but there's also a lot of ancient things. They've done a whole lot of effort to make sure they preserve their ancient artifacts and their ancient landmarks. The ruins of the Colosseum that I mentioned a minute ago are still there in Rome. There's also a place in Rome, <clears throat> which is like right in the center of the ancient city, which was called the Roman Forum, which was basically where the Senate and where all of the things took place of, of, as far as government and, and jurisdiction and all of those types of things. But in the dead center of the city today, you'll see this, this rock, okay? And we got a picture of it. And if you could throw that up there on the screen, it's basically just this rock that's there. And it looks like the base of this gigantic column. And underneath of it, you'll see inscripted on there is something called the Malarium Arim. And the Malarium RM is basically means the golden milestone. What this was in its heyday, and we got a picture of what it would have looked like in its heyday there. The Millennium, uh, the millennium RM was basically this large column that Emperor Caesar Augustus, the Caesar that was over all of the world when Jesus came into being because he taxed the world and caused Mary and, and Joseph to have to go to Bethlehem. This same emperor had this uh, had this big column put up in the very center of the city. And it was known as the Golden Milestone because at the top of each column was cities and territories that Rome was in control of. And at that time in the world, Rome was the largest empire, the most vast empire. All of Europe was under Roman control. A lot of the Middle East, most of Northern Africa, and a lot of Asia was coming under Roman control. And so to show the glory of Rome and the expanse of Rome... The emperor had this column put up, and every time a place was conquered, a new name would be engraved in there, and also on there would be the number of miles or the distance from that point in the city to that territory. And that was to remind all of the people that lived there in Rome that we are a great people. And that basically was also to say that the, the, the city of Rome was the center of the universe, that they were standing, when they stood at that golden milestone, they were standing at the very center of the whole world and whole, the whole universe. So if you've ever heard that phrase, all roads lead to Rome, it comes from the millennium Arium. 
comes from the idea that all roads at that time, and what Caesar Augustus had done was from that point, from all the roads that would spoke out of that column like a wagon wheel almost, which we're, we're pretty familiar with in Lexington because we're, we're laid out in a wagon wheel format. And if you're a driver, you understand that sometimes that's a blessing and a lot of times that's a curse, right? Well, imagine it being for a whole empire, right? And so it spread out like veins through the whole region that Rome controlled. And so from that point, you could get anywhere in the Roman Empire. All the way up into the medieval times, up into the 1300s, author Geoffrey Chaucer in the Canterbury Tales kind of used this phrase that all roads lead to Rome. It reminded us that you could get anywhere, from anywhere in the world, you could get to Rome. And so for a Roman citizen, that was something that they puffed their chest out a little bit about and they were excited about. But for if, you weren't, if, you were a, if you were under Roman control, if you were in one of those territories that had been conquered, it wasn't necessarily a point of significance and a point of pride. It was a point of intimidation. Because while everybody could get to Rome from where they were, it also reminded everyone else that Rome could get to you no matter where you are. And they used that intimidation a lot. They used that intimidation probably better than anybody else because along all these roads that led to Rome, we're used to driving the interstate system. We get out on the interstate and we see, we see road markers and we see billboards telling us where the next McDonald's is or where the next Starbucks is or we start seeing uh, billboards for attractions that we want to stop at like the biggest ball of yarn and the biggest ball of lint that a person pulled out of his dryer in the 50s or something like that. We see these attractions, but what they had were completely different kind of billboards on the roads that led to Rome. See, what Rome would do is they would take anyone who stood in opposition to Rome, they would kill them by crucifixion, and they would put their crosses right along the roads in every territory, reminding anyone who traveled those roads, if you stand against Rome, this will be your future. If we can get to you, this will be what happens to you. And authors and, and, and historians of the time used to say that the closer you got to Rome, the more and more and more bodies you would see lining the roads reminding people, don't test Rome. This was the kind of environment and this was the kind of, uh, this was the kind of, uh, of, of atmosphere that Paul is writing at this time. And Paul is wanting at this point to travel one of those roads from Corinth to get to Rome. And he's going to walk past all of those things as great intimidations. And a lot of those people that lined the streets were Christians because Christianity was considered to be a public nuisance at that point. And so Paul still said, I want to travel those roads. Paul was not intimidated. When Rome wanted to intimidate through all of their roads, Paul was not intimidated by those roads. He saw something different in those roads. He realized this. If all roads lead to Rome, then that means that all roads lead from Rome too. And he thought, and what he saw was not a road system to spread the glory of the Roman Empire. He saw that road system as something that would spread the glory of the message of the gospel throughout the known world. That's why he wanted to get to Rome. Rome or Paul's vision was if the gospel could thrive in Rome, and in Rome could be set up as a hub to distribute the gospel throughout all of the world. See, as a preacher, Paul was totally committed and sold out to preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. But as a missionary and as a church planner, he was a visionary with the heart of a pioneer and saw within that system, uh, that road system, the ability to take the gospel far and wide. 
See, Paul's vision was that the roads that Caesar Augustus had built to serve and spread the glory and the power of Rome would one day be the roads that believers would use to carry the power of the gospel. And in verse number eight of our text, it looks like some of that was already taking place because in verse number eight, he says, first, I thank my God, Jesus Christ, for all of you who are in Rome because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. See, Paul had not been to Rome personally yet. He wanted so badly to go to Rome. He wanted to get there. Because, I mean, it was, of all cities, it was the city of the world, right? He wanted to get to Rome badly. He'd heard of stories about Rome from people who had been to Rome, and he'd heard about what was going on among the churches in Rome, and he was encouraged by that, and he wanted to be part of that. He wanted to be encouraged, and he also wanted to encourage them in the gospel as well. But he's writing to the Romans right now from the city of Corinth, telling about his plan that he has, that he wants to come to Rome on his way to Spain, which Spain at that point was the most western point of the Roman Empire that you could go. Here was Paul's visionary and pioneer idea. I'm going to take the gospel as far as I can go for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so he said, I'm going to stop by Rome for a while because number one, I want to preach to you guys and I want to meet you guys. Because Paul had nothing to do with, the, with the, the planting of the church in Rome. But man, the gospel was flourishing there from what he could see and what he could hear. And he wanted to see it and wanted to be part of it and wanted to gather some encouragement as well. But he also wanted to collect an offering that would help to fund the ministry to go out to the church that he wanted to plant out in Spain as well. But you see, that journey to Spain never happens. We don't see him go to Spain in scripture because he ends up going to Rome, but not the way he wanted to. Paul gets arrested a little bit after the book of Romans is written, and he's taken to Rome as a prisoner to stand trial before Caesar, and he'll eventually be executed. But he spends two years there in Rome as a prisoner. And while he's there as a prisoner in Rome, guess what he does for two years? He preaches the gospel. He preaches the gospel to the people he's in jail with. He's taken out of jail, and, and, he's, and he's chained to a centurion. He preaches the gospel to the centurions. He preaches the gospel to Caesar. He preaches the gospel to Felix. He preaches the gospel to Agrippa. He just can't stop preaching the gospel. And it has an effect. And here's why. His desire and his motivation for going to Rome was his desire and his motivation for going wherever he went. In verse number 14, look what he says. I am... What's that word there? I am obligated. I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul didn't see the gospel as just some accessory to his faith. It was necessary and it is what fueled everything that he did. Church, I want to ask a very, a very practical question of application today. Is the gospel honestly and truthfully central to the ministry of Graceway Church? If it is not, we have to course correct and get to there. Is the gospel central? The gospel of Jesus Christ that saved you, sustains you, gives you hope in a future, is that central to your life and central to every interaction you have with people? If not, we need to course correct and get there because that's the way Paul says, I am obligated. Not just, you know, it's, it's my hobby. It's something I'm really into. I'm obligated to share the gospel. They say that hindsight is always 20-20, right? You always look back on things. If I could go back and talk to high school Derek, there's a few things that I'd want to tell him, you know, because there's a lot of things that high school Derek needed to know, but I know high school Derek wouldn't have ever listened to old man Derek either. All right, so it wouldn't have mattered either way. 
Hindsight is always 20-20, and read, we read this with the advantage of knowing he doesn't get to Rome. We know that this, what he says, his desire doesn't exactly come to fruition the way he wants it to, but his di- desire still does come to fruition. Like I said, he preaches the gospel to cellmates in prison. He preaches it to centurions. He preaches it before leaders. He preaches it to Greeks. He preaches it to Jews. He preaches it to barbarians. He preaches it to kings. He preaches it to blue-collar, and he preaches it to prisoners. Until Paul drew his final breath in Rome, he was preaching in Rome. And the reason for that is in verse number 16. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In light of all the hardship that would eventually come his way in Rome, Paul would never feel a moment of shame for the gospel that he committed to preach. The gospel would be what costs him his life. Yet he always said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not going to stumble over it. I'm not going to water it down. I'm not going to change it. I'm not going to try to make it more palatable. I'm going to preach the gospel, no matter what it costs him. So this morning, we're going to spend the rest of our time basically in verses 16 and 17. And I want to look at four things that we have to draw from verses 16 and 17 that remind us as a church today. In 2021, our mission is no different than what Paul wrote to the Romans all the way back in 58 AD. It's no different. It has not changed. The mission is the same. The methods, the the devices that we have to make this happen may be different and may be a little bit, uh, we may have a wider range to be able to do that, but the gospel message and the reason and the motivation is still the same. You see, these two verses are called the key verses in the entire book because they tell us, number one, why the gospel was so important to Paul. They tell us, number one, that the gospel was very important to Paul and why it was so important to Paul. But they also tell us and they give us a doctrinal foundation for why the gospel is so significant still to us today. See, a lot of times what we, what we do as we evolve and as we progress in culture and progress in humanity, we begin to look at the things of old as something to be respected, but they're not necessarily something that applies today. But church, I want to tell you this. If we don't believe and if we don't breathe this notion that the gospel still applies today, we should close our doors. The gospel still matters and the gospel is still the reason that we do what we do as the church. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when it comes to eternity, it doesn't matter if you were born in 1 AD or in 3000 in 1 AD. If you're going to live for eternity, it's going to be because you went through the cross of Jesus Christ at Jerusalem. It's never going to change. You see, all the roads that once led to Rome all those years ago, all those roads that once led to Rome have deteriorated away. They're not there anymore. But the gospel still stands today as the road that leads us to God. So this morning, the title of the message is simply, The Gospel is the Road that Leads Us to God. And I want to look at four things that the gospel reveals to us to pave the way to God. Number one, the gospel reveals to us the power of God. The gospel reveals to us the power of God. Look again in verse number 16. You're going to hear these verses a lot because we're going to pick these verses apart and just really drill down into them. Number one, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the, what? Help me out. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. So the gospel we see reveals the power of God. It reveals the power of God. But what's so interesting about the gospel is it always has been and always will be irrational. 
Well, we have to understand about the gospel that we talk about so much, and it is a buzzword, especially in the Baptist church, gospel, gospel, gospel. You can't say it enough. After a while, you start to sound like a chicken, gospel, 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 a little bit, you know, gobble, gobble, no, turkey, sorry, that's wrong, wrong form of poultry there, right? Gospel, gospel, gospel. What's, what's so wrong with being all about the gospel? Well, a lot of people look at us today, and a lot of people have looked at Christians throughout the centuries, even the moment the gospel came to be, and said, it's foolishness. The Bible actually says that the gospel is foolishness to those who won't believe. See, the gospel is completely and totally irrational. It was irrational then, it's irrational today, but it doesn't change the fact that it is powerful. See, this is why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's encouraging the Romans who are meeting underground. He's encouraging the rest of the Christians. He's encouraging us today with the fact that this gospel message that you proclaim and this gospel message that feeds you is not going to make sense to everybody. There are going to be times in your life as you walk with Jesus that the gospel is not going to make sense to you. We've wrestled over this message for centuries, church. And we're going, to continue, we're going to continue to wrestle over the message, but the message is still plain and simple. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is power, but it is irrational. Looking at that phrase, I'm not ashamed of the gospel in 2021 in a church service, in a culture where we're free to worship God, we might ask, why would somebody be ashamed of the gospel? But stop for a minute and think about what the gospel proclaims. It proclaims that a Jewish carpenter and rabbi was put to death on a cross by Pontius Pilate as a heretic to the Jews and an anarchist to the empire of Rome. The message goes on to say that this man raised from the dead and has ascended to heaven as Lord of all. Lord was the title that was used of God in the Greek Bible and it was applied to the emperor by the Romans. So for the Jews to hear that this Jewish carpenter from Nazareth, from Nazareth was a was the Lord and the king kind of flew in the face of everything they knew. And to the Romans, they thought that their emperor was God and nobody else was as amazing and nobody else was as supreme as their emperor. See, Paul even admitted in 1 Corinthians that the gospel seemed foolish to the Gentiles and was a real stumbling block to the Jews. And here's why. Because the Jewish people thrived on being God's people. They were arrogant almost to the point where they boasted a lot about God's history of doing amazing things to prove his power and to overcome their oppressors. He brought them out of Egypt through the 10 plagues. He overthrew Babylon. He overthrew Persia. Everyone who tried to oppress Israel throughout the centuries and throughout the history, God stepped in and took care of his kids. And so they liked the fact that they were God's kids. And they looked at God as someone who was powerful. So now all of a sudden, God wants to save the world through a carpenter who falls under the power of Rome, doesn't defeat the current oppressor. See, what they were looking for in the Messiah was somebody that was going to come and overthrow Rome, not be crucified under its authority. See, the Romans were the world power at that point. The idea of following somebody who wasn't Roman, especially a Jew and a blue-collar Jew at that, seemed to be ridiculous. See, Paul knew that the message wasn't going to make sense to just about anyone who heard it, except for the fact, this one little thing. Paul was the Jewish of Jewish guy, you could imagine. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the one who hated God and hated Jesus more than anybody. Paul was also a Roman citizen. So he was doubly hateful towards God. And here's what he knew. That message that makes no sense knocked me on my tail and completely rearranged my life. 
I thought that message was stupid to one point, but then it changed my life, and now I can't do anything but utter it and live by it and risk my life for it. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it completely turned me around. And I know that if Paul can be changed by the gospel, the world can be changed by the gospel too. The Jews that are stumbling over the gospel, once they meet Jesus, it changes. The Romans who are offended by the gospel, once they meet Jesus, once they meet Jesus, I said, Jesus, once they meet Jesus, it'll change. See, the gospel doesn't make sense, but the gospel is power. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power. That word power there comes from the word we get our word dynamite from. It means it's an active power. It's an able power. It's a capable power. So when he says the gospel is the power of God, it is a power that cannot be stopped. It cannot be contained. It's a power that will go on no matter how many people, no matter how many kingdoms and empires and emperors and presidents and, and city council members may rise against it. The gospel will prevail. The gospel is power. It's a power that is able to stand on its own. And let me say this too, church. It's simply because it has that kind of power, it doesn't need to be propped up by us. We oftentimes look and say, oh man, if this happens, the gospel won't be able to be preached. Yes, the gospel will prevail. It always has and it always will. Always has and it always will. So rest in that promise. This is why Paul could preach the same message to kings and emperors as he does to commoners and slaves because it's powerful and it's able to stand on its own. This is how he could preach the same gospel to Jews without altering it and take it to the Gentiles and the barbarians because the gospel is power. It is power in and of itself. This is a wonderful notion to me, especially when I stand in this pulpit every single week and I declare the gospel of Christ knowing that it doesn't, it doesn't rest on my ability, my intellect, my oratory skills. It is the power of the gospel that reaches us. I love what Pastor D.L. Moody from years gone by said. He says, the gospel is like a lion. All the preacher has to do is open the cage and get out of the way. That's the power of this gospel that we have. The gospel is not only power, it is the power of God, meaning it is under the authority and the sovereign purpose of God. God's going to do with the gospel what God's going to do with the gospel. And God has saw fit that the gospel will be the conduit through which men and women, boys and girls, will be drawn to his son, Jesus Christ. God is not going to suffer the gospel to be defeated because he has a plan to defeat sin through the gospel. The gospel is the power of God. Just like the song that we've been singing this month, when my sin was great, his mercy is more. See, that's the gospel to us in a nutshell, right? God is so powerful that when sin reigned in our mortal bodies, his grace and his mercy and his love did so much more abound that he would see to it to send his one and only son from heaven to earth to subject himself to the powers of hell and the Jewish establishment and the cross of Rome that God in heaven would care so much to send his son to be condemned for our sin. When our sin was great, his mercy was more. And for about three days, it looked like the Jewish elite and the Roman Empire was more powerful than God. For about three days, it looked like that. See, from Friday to Sunday, there was a party in hell. See, God had been defeated and Jesus was dead, so Satan danced. See, from Friday to Sunday, the Pharisees thought that they had restored peace and they bent the, the balance of power back to their favor. From Friday to Sunday, Pontius Pilate and the Romans thought that they had put down another little Jewish uprising and once again displayed the power and glory of Rome. But come Sunday morning, the party in hell was over. 
Satan stopped dancing and he started quaking. The Pharisees realized you can make deals with Rome, but it will never bring peace that only the peace of Jesus Christ can bring. You see, Rome realized that all the power of their empire, all the intimidation of a cross, all the weight of a boulder in front of a tomb was no match for the true King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Because when Jesus walked out of that tomb in Jerusalem, the whole world felt it. The power of God reverberated through every road all the way to Rome from Rome. And since that moment, empires have come and gone, nations have risen and fallen, but the gospel has remained steady. Because the gospel is the power of God. And so this is the question that you have to answer today. Have you come face to face, you personally, have you come face to face with the power of the gospel? Has the power of God reached your spirit? And church, are we ministering and are we worshiping and existing in the power of that gospel? Because when we settle for less, when we settle for secondary saviors, when we settle for a gospel that does not point to Jesus Christ, we will never see the true power of God. See, the gospel reveals the power of God, but let's move on to point number two. What else does that power do? You see, not only does it reveal the power of God, but it also reveals God's salvation. Look again at verse number 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for what? For salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. See, what this verse is telling us is that the power of God is mighty to save. It says it's the power of God for salvation. See, the first message of this series, we talked about how the gospel is this great theme and great scheme of God for humanity. God possesses all power and authority over everything. That's his sovereignty. He saw fit to use that power to redeem us, even when we rebelled against him, even when we returned from him, and even when Adam and Eve committed spiritual suicide that affected all of us and rejected his law, God still saw fit to save us, even though we don't deserve it. And I cannot express this enough. The fact that God would use his power to save us rather than destroy us is the greatest news that we can share with anyone. And that's why the gospel is that evangelion. It is the greatest news in history. Here's what Romans tells us a little bit later on, and we'll be getting to these verses in this series too, but it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 6 tells us, The wages of sin is death, but that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And in Romans chapter 5 verse 8 said, God proved or he commended his love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ still died for us. See, the power of God is mighty to save, but it's mighty to save everyone. This is the power of God, not that it only saves a few, but it will save anyone who believes. So let's make sure that we understand that God in his infinite power and in his holiness chose to make salvation available to everyone. It says it's the power of God for salvation to anyone and everyone who believes. Now, this was a hot topic for the Christians in the early uh, in the early generations of Christianity because the Jewish believers thought that God was just a Jewish God and that Jesus was just a Jewish Messiah. And so the only people who could be saved was a Jew. God had made a covenant with Abraham that out of him all the nations would be blessed and they missed that part. That God had made that covenant with Abraham, a Jewish man, yes, but all the nations would be blessed from his seed. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he made salvation available to Jew, to Gentile, to barbarian, to learn, to unlearn, to man, to woman, to boy, to girl, to red, yellow, black, and white. 
He made salvation available to anyone who believes. And the beautiful thing about the gospel is that it is so powerful that it is the same gospel that saves us today in Lexington, Kentucky, in the United States of America in 2021. It's the same gospel that saved Paul on the road to Damascus. It's the same gospel that saved the early Christians in Rome. It's the same gospel that is being preached this morning from this pulpit. It's the same gospel, the same Jesus, the same Messiah that's being preached in pulpits all throughout the world. Not just preached in pulpits, but talked about and shared at coffee shops around the world, in catacombs back in Rome. It's the same gospel, and it's the universal gospel that Jesus died to save all of us. The same gospel that saved the Jews at Pentecost is the same gospel that saves us in 2021. And this is what makes the Bible, this book that we're studying, still relevant today because the gospel is the great scheme of God and his word. See, his desire is for all of us to hear the gospel and to come to him and live in the salvation of the gospel message. And the question I have for you this morning is, have you received Jesus? Have you responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you been saved? Are you struggling? If you have been saved, are you struggling to find a way to share the gospel with those around you because you feel like since everything seems to be changing around you and we're living in a time of what seems of cultural revolution that maybe people aren't as interested in Jesus or maybe I've got to somehow tweak Jesus or tweak the gospel to make it more palatable so other people will receive it. I want to challenge you with this. The gospel is power. It is the power of God. The gospel doesn't receive its power from me and my eloquence to share it. The gospel stands on its own. It stood through freedom. It stood through oppression, and it will continue to stand long before us and long after us as well. So the gospel doesn't have to be modified because the gospel is the modifier. The gospel is the truth that sets us free from the death sentence See, the gospel doesn't need to be amended. It is what amends the death sentence that we brought on ourselves through sin. I love what D.L. Moody said several years ago. He said, the gospel is like a lion. All the preacher must do and all the person that is sharing the gospel must do is open the cage and just get out of the way. The gospel will do the saving work. It's because the gospel is God's power unto salvation. The third thing that we have to remember about the gospel and how it is a road that leads us to him is that the gospel on this road reveals to us God's infinite and unmatched righteousness. Moving into verse number 17, look what it says. For in it, speaking of the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It says, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So the question we've got to ask here is, what is the righteousness of God? When we see this phrase, and we're going to see this phrase throughout the book of Romans, throughout most of Paul's writings and all of his epistles, we see this phrase, the righteousness of God. It's like a theme that just keeps on coming up in everything that Paul writes and everything that Paul communicates. Why does Paul care so much and why does he want us to know so much about the righteousness of God? Because when we come to know the righteousness of God, we understand that God is so far above us and we come to understand the miracle that the gospel really is, that this righteous and holy God would care so much in his righteousness to love us and to redeem us who are so unrighteous. You see, there is no unrighteousness at all in God. It's not that just that God is mostly good. It's that God is all good and everything that is good is of God. Now that's a, that's a deep fact for us to have to unpack, and we don't have time to unpack all of that right now. But God is perfect. He is sinless, and he is without wrong. It says in the Bible that Jesus, God's son, 
God manifest in the flesh, it said that he was tempted in every way that we are. There's no temptation that we go through that Jesus did not face as well. It says there was one difference in what Jesus did. Jesus faced every temptation without giving in, without sin. Because Jesus is God and God cannot sin or he would not be the perfect sacrifice for us. Because the nature of God is totally and completely righteous. The psalmist says in Psalm 145, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and he's faithful in all of his acts. You see, the righteousness of God is perfect, but the righteousness of God for us, we can't attain that righteousness. I can't just turn myself around and by willpower says, I'm going to be as righteous as, as God. Because the moment I was conceived, the moment I was conceived, I was conceived in sin nature. We inherited that from Adam and Eve. God's righteousness is unattainable for me. Here's what Psalm says in Psalm 71. Your righteousness, God, reaches the heights. You who have done great things, God, who is like you? The psalmist even asked this question, who is righteous like you? There is no one that is righteous like him. See, the righteousness of God, when we come to understand just how pure and how holy he is, we come to understand God's perfect standard. And then we come to understand that we fall short of that standard. See, the righteousness of God and the reason Paul wants us to understand and turn our attention towards his righteousness is because when we come to understand just how righteous God is, we come to understand just how unrighteous we are. See, conventional wisdom today tries to say that man and humanity is just inherently good. That we start out with this perfect, clean slate and we're corrupted as we go along. We're corrupted by thoughts and ideologies. Maybe we're corrupted by our parents or abuses that we may face or we're corrupted by bad influences, but we started out good. But the Bible takes that philosophy and turns it on its head. It says that, no, we start out unrighteous. We start out dead in our trespasses and in our sins. See, when we start and we live our lives with this idea that I'm good and I just turn bad, or I'm good and I just need to stay good, it eventually leads us to a disillusionment with the world that is out to get me, rather than a world that I should be redeemed by Jesus Christ and I should reach with the love of Jesus Christ. Because we live in a world that's inherently broken by the sin and the curse of the fall, and it's not just we live in a world that's broken, we are broken as well because we're part of it. That's why we need the gospel. So the gospel tells us that God is totally righteous and we are totally not. Romans chapter 3 says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now I know that I'm probably talking to some people who are some really good people. I love being the pastor here at Graceway because I'm around some great people. But I gotta say this, and you know I love you. But none of us are good. We're all sinners. All of us have sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. It's not a question of how good we are. It's a question of, whether we can be made good by the grace of Jesus Christ. Romans 3.10 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Isaiah chapter 64 says, All of us have become like something unclean or like filthy rags, and all of our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. All of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities carry us away like a polluted garment. They carry us away like of the wind. See, this doesn't make the gospel sound like a very positive message, does it? Hold on, I thought you said that the gospel was good news, right? The gospel is good news, yes, but here is what makes good news so good. Good news becomes great news when it overcomes the bad news and the reality of the bad news that we're living in, and that's what the gospel does. The gospel reminds us we live in a fallen, broken world. We are broken ourselves, and we have no hope other than Jesus Christ. 
See, it tells us, the gospel tells us that there is a righteous God. But looking at that righteous God makes us realize just how unrighteous we are. And then when we look at that, that we look into the righteousness of God and we see how broken we are, we then hear the mercy of God say, but wait, there's hope. I sent my son, Jesus Christ, perfect as I am because I am Jesus. I sent him to redeem you. You can be saved. See, good news becomes great news when it overrides the bad reality that we're living in. The good news is news that defeats the bad news. And then lastly, before we close out this morning, not only is the gospel the road that leads us to God because it shows us his power, because it shows us his righteousness, but also because it calls us to faith in Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 1, verse 17, the last part of it we see, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the question is, if God is so righteous and I'm unrighteous, how do I ever get to that place? It's through Jesus Christ, his son. The Bible tells us that to receive the gospel, I can't pay enough money. I can't write a check to receive the gospel because the check was already written on the cross. What I must do to receive Jesus is I must receive him by faith. That's why it says the righteous. If I will have God's righteousness given to me, it will be given through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is the conduit through which salvation flows to us. It's like the currency of redemption, his saving grace for our desperate faith. I love what Ephesians chapter two says. It says, for you are saved by grace through faith and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. <clears throat> you see, for some of you, this is the point that you're struggling with. You look at the gospel and you hear the salvation plan and you hear a sermon and you hear the invitation given by, by me or by another preacher here and you hear all you must do is put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sin and repent of your sin and come to know him and you will be eternally saved. But it doesn't seem to make sense because you just keep struggling with this foolish notion that there's a perfect God out there who created you yet you have so many flaws and shortcomings. How could God be so perfect and create me so imperfect? Well, that's because of sin entering into the world. It's because we did that. You see, we struggle with the fact that God loves us completely more than anyone else has ever loved us, yet he lets us live in a broken and dangerous and troubled world with hurt and pain. If he loved me so much, why in the world would he let me live in such a miserable existence? You're struggling with the idea and what you're told that he wants you to know him but doesn't seem to be shouting for your attention. And a matter of fact, it seems like he may be playing this cosmic game of hide and seek with you. And you're struggling with the fact that you're told that he has a purpose for you that makes your life worthwhile yet for some reason it still seems like you're meandering around, wandering in the dark trying to find that purpose, trying to find that fulfillment where you don't feel like you're living your life in obscurity. And you're absolutely right. None of that makes sense. It all seems to not make sense. The things that I preach from this pulpit every Sunday, you look at it and then you look at the reality of life and you're thinking, it doesn't seem to make sense that God loves me if I'm still living in so much pain. Everything seems broken. Everything seems shattered. Everything seems like broken roads and foundations all around me. And that's why he deserves our faith. Because faith is something that we trust for the future. Faith is something that we do not see. It's what we believe and what we hope in. Because when everything else around you breaks and crumbles, it is Jesus in his righteousness who still stands in the middle of the heaps of ashes saying, come to me, all you broken and tired. 
So the question is, how do I come to him? You have to come to him in faith and in need of God's forgiveness, in need of salvation, in need of his righteousness. You see, it's the brokenness that leads us to the healing that only God can provide. Psalm 31 says, Lord, I seek refuge in you. Let me never be disgraced. Save me by your righteousness. And that's simply the prayer of salvation. Lord, I seek my refuge in you. In the middle of all the broken roads and the shattered dreams, I seek my refuge in you because you are my rock. You are the one that I will rest on. Let me never be disgraced. Save me by your righteousness because I have none to offer myself. The question as I close out today is, has that been a prayer in your life before? Have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, in the righteousness of God that you cannot attain on your own? It has to be received by faith in Jesus Christ and in his righteousness. See, as I said at the beginning of the message this morning, all roads led, led to Rome. All those roads that led to Rome at one time have long since deteriorated and long since crumbled because everything this world has to offer is temporary. Only Jesus Christ is eternal. And only the gospel leads to salvation. That road that still stands today, that road to God is the gospel of Jesus Christ and it has been paved by the blood and the righteousness of the Savior. But that road is narrow. It only goes through Jesus Christ. And the question is, have you come to him? If you have not come to him, come to him today. The Bible tells us all has sinned and come short of the glory of God, but if we will confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we will believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. Repent of our sins. Repent of the fact that I am broken. I am unrighteous, God, but you're wholly righteous and I trust in you to give me your righteousness. The righteous will live, will live eternally by faith. If you don't know Christ, come to him today. Ask Jesus to be your Savior. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section. Or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 1030 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.